Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Potomac Hills. Uh, my name is Frank. If you don't know me, please do stick around after the service so that uh, I can get to know you just a little bit. Uh, again, if you're new or if you've forgotten or you just haven't been paying attention, which is also fine, I guess. Um, we're in the middle of a sermon series looking at common ways uh, Bible stories are misused. And this morning we've come to the story of Judas Iscariot, the traitor. So uh, if you would turn, me, turn with me in your Bibles to John 13, we'll be reading verses 21 to 30. Uh, but this morning, it'll be a little bit different in that it'll be a little bit more topical. And so we'll be skipping around the Bible to s- see a lot of different verses. So uh, if you want to get ahead, uh, you can go ahead and uh, find John chapter 6, John chapter 10, and Romans 8 as well. Sorry, that's a lot of fingers, I understand. Um, but uh, good luck. <laughs> So uh, let's go to God's word, reading from John 13, verses 21 to 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked to one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Would you pray with me? Father God, this morning we come uh, to this passage, and we come with so many assumptions about who uh, Judas was and who we are as well. Lord, as we wrestle with questions about assurance of salvation, about whether or not we can lose our salvation, would you remind us of that great truth, that we are not our own, and that salvation is not wrought by us, but by you. So Lord, would you show us uh, through your word that we are secure in you. We, would you do this and transform us and cause us to love you more this morning, we pray in Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen. So, uh, if you have uh, the sermon outline uh, online, you'll see that this morning I've listed two names in the introduction, Peter Pettigrew and Elsa Schneider. Now, how many of you guys know where Peter Pettigrew comes from? What? Okay, Harry Potter. Good, good. Fantastic. If not, you should go out and read Harry Potter. Good series, generally speaking. Um, those, who, who knows where Elsa Schneider comes from? Very few hands, okay? Hint, it is not Elsa from Frozen, but it is, uh, Elsa Schneider is a character in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And so you're like, oh, I vaguely remember that girl, right? So 
both of them, you're like, well, what do these two characters have to do with each other? Well, they're both traitors, but they're, interestingly, both traitors not cut from the same cloth. And you're like, well, duh, one of them's a rat-faced traitor who sells out his friends, and the other one's a beautiful deceiver who uh, worked to, for the Nazis to weasel information out of Indiana Jones that was important to find the Holy Grail. You're like, kind of different, very different, in fact. Yet both of them were traitors. They both switched sides and betrayed those who trusted them. But they're radically different kinds of traitors. Now, what do I mean by that? Usually when we talk about traitors, and we hopefully don't talk about traitors all that much, we talk about people that switch sides for personal gain. And that's sort of Peter Pettigrew. He's sort of really sort of quintessential in that. He used to run with the Order of Phoenix um, and was close friends with Lily and James Potter, but then he betrays all of them to save his own skin from Voldemort. And so he sold them out, and it led to uh, the Potter's death. And that's sort of the classic switching sides, right? Those of you that um, have not read Harry Potter, sorry for the spoilers. Okay. <laughs> but, you know... Basically, he truly was on one side, and then now he's truly on another. And, but there's another way to be tr a traitor as well, and this is where Elsa Schneider comes in. She uh, was an Austrian art historian looking for the Holy Grail in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and she won the trust of Indiana Jones, but all along, she was a Nazi agent working to get Dr. Jones's Grail diary. And this betrayal looked like she was switching sides from Indy's perspective, uh, making her look like a traitor, but really it was more of an unmasking uh, rather than an actual switching. Her betrayal merely revealed that what she had always been, which was a Nazi agent. And so it's probably more, more accurate to describe her not as a traitor, but as an imposter. And so why are we making this distinction in, type, in types of traitors? It's because when we look at Judas, the way we look at Judas and understand him and understand his betrayal will impact the way that we understand who Judas really was. And do we see Judas as a traitor in the same way Peter Pettigrew was, sort of truly switching sides? Or do we see Judas as an imposter in sort of the vein of uh, Elsa Schneider merely revealing what had always been true of him? Now, who cares? Why do we care what kind of traitor Judas was. He betrayed Jesus. That's all we really need to know, right? But unfortunately, the way that we view Judas will inform and impact the way that we understand the assurance of our salvation. The question really is, did Judas lose his salvation or not? Did he really switch sides, or did he merely reveal that he was never saved to begin with? And that's a really big question, a question that sort of weighs on our hearts from time to time. And so we're going to look at the two types of traitor to see which one the biblical Judas Iscariot fits into, and then hopefully we'll spend the bulk of our time working through the great promises of the gospel regarding the assurance of our salvation. And so I've sort of let, let the cat out of the back. You know where I stand, right? So let's start with Judas as traitor a la Peter Pettigrew. So Judas is usually viewed as a traitor in the vein of Peter Pettigrew and other infamous traitors like Benedict Arnold and so on and so forth, right? I mean, we get it. We see how you can come to that conclusion. 
He was hand-chosen by Jesus to be one of the 12. He was uh, with Jesus as a disciple for three years, listening and learning all the same things the other disciples did, and even did miracles from, by his own hand, right, in the name of Jesus. He looked pretty much like every other believer, uh, all the other disciples, and since they're clearly believers, we assume that he was a believer too. And I mean, Judas obviously knew who Jesus was. He had sat through all of it. Right? He understood who Jesus was, but despite knowing Jesus, hearing his teaching, and seeing firsthand the miracles he performed, Judas turned his back on Jesus when he betrayed him into the hands of the Sanhedrin. And so, in the passage that we read this morning, in John 13, it's somewhat vague, actually, regarding Judas's betrayal and traitorness. At face value, it seems like, what? Jesus is giving Judas the chance to repent, suggesting that there was sort of a real decision, a real switching of sides here. Why else would Jesus bring this up at the Last Supper? Why even call Judas out? Why else would Jesus have placed Judas, the betrayer whom he knows is going to betray him, at the place of honor at the Last Supper, to his left? When I preached on... um, essentially the parallel passage in Mark just two months ago, I, I, I told us that when Judas is seated at the table, you normally would recline at the table uh, at the Last Supper, and being to Jesus' left, you would normally lay on your left side, which puts Judas directly behind Jesus. And so Judas's face is right to Jesus' back of his head, and they were sort of crammed around this table, and so it would have been really easy for Judas to just sort of lean in, whisper his confession and repentance to Jesus's uh, ear, and no one would have known any different. And so what Jesus is doing is Jesus is putting Judas at a place of honor and intimacy, enabling him to confess easily. And so there really is this call to repentance going out to Judas, which would suggest that there is a real switching of sides. And also in verse 27, the text says that Satan entered into Judas at that time. This would sort of seem to be a definitive point where Judas decides to switch sides. Uh, And so it would seem from all of the evidence in sort of understanding the Last Supper and the text here in John that Judas is a traitor just like Peter Pettigrew, just like Benedict Arnold, really swapping sides after being on Team Jesus, now he's on Team Satan. It's not a great switch, to be honest, right? And so the usual line of thought usually runs something like this. Judas was a believer before his betrayal, and then clearly not after. Therefore, he had to have lost his salvation. And this means we too can lose our salvation. That's really terrifying. It's not particularly comforting from there. Because from there, from the idea that we can lose our salvation, we cannot possibly have assurance of our salvation. I mean, where's the line, right? We can't possibly have any idea if we've sinned enough to lose our salvation like Judas did. And so where's the line again? At what point do I lose my salvation? No one really knows. And so from this 
we end up having to continually ask Jesus back into our hearts to pray a prayer of belief and repentance over and over and over again just to be sure, just in case. Oh, I, I sinned this way. Maybe I, I, that's too much, and I, I, I have to go back and, and sort of pray the sinner's prayer again. And it, it just produces a lot of anxiety within your heart and your soul. Now, obviously... I think that this is, there's a misuse, that there's an error in this thought, uh, in this sort of doctrine, or else we wouldn't be preaching on this, right? So the question is where? Where do we go wrong? Where do folks go wrong when they look at the story of Judas? And really what we're looking for is proof that Judas was a believer before the betrayal. Because everybody agrees that he was not a believer at the end of his life, that he was judged harshly and, con- and condemned for his sin in betraying Jesus. But what about before? What about before the betrayal? What was he when he was among the disciples for those three years of Jesus' ministry? And did you note that I said something about, about an assumption, that I pointed out an assumption that we make or that has been made? And we've got to be really careful because one assumption, just one, can really lead us far afield. It can lead us pretty far astray. And so what did we assume? What do we assume when we come to Judas? We assume that Judas was a believer. That's the assumption. And why? Why do we assume that? We do that because of the way that he looks on the outside, because of the company that he keeps, because he was a disciple because he was a follower of Jesus, because he even displayed fruit of ministry. When we look at Judas's ministry in the name of Jesus in Luke 9, Luke 9 tells us that Jesus sends out the disciples two by two to um, minister in, in his name. And what do they do? They go out and they preach the gospel and they heal folks. And that's, it's like a really quick, oh, and they healed people. And then it just sort of moves on. But that's a really big miracle. I cannot go up and be like, I heal you of your leprosy. Like, generally speaking, if I try to do that, nothing is going to happen. But yet, Judas and the other disciples go out and they supernaturally heal people. And that's a great and amazing work that testifies to the goodness of Jesus Christ and the power in his name. And so Judas has healed people. That's crazy. And so Judas was a a minister handpicked by Jesus, doing great words in Jesus' name, was a disciple of Jesus, and had even forsaken his previous life to follow Jesus. It had cost him a lot to follow Jesus. All of that really makes us think that he's a believer. It really sounds like he's a believer. If Judas were here today, we would say that he's a pretty awesome Christian. He has done some great things. But those great things that he has done doesn't count for much. They don't actually prove anything about his heart condition. And when we, t- we tend to look at a- achievements and accomplishments and sort of the outward packaging, but as the Lord told Samuel way back in 1 Samuel 16, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So, where can we go to learn about the heart of Judas? 
Well, I hope you're not surprised, but there are some Bible verses uh, that tell us about who Judas really was. And this is where we err, is we tend to look at one sort of passage and draw conclusions and assumptions, and we forget about all the other verses that sort of apply to that assumption. We just sort of assume, because that's what we are used to doing, and then we forget about the other verses in the Bible. So, spoiler alert, he's not a traitor, he's an imposter, um, and his betrayal only reveals that he was never a child of God, but rather a son of destruction. So, what's the evidence about Ju- Judas's heart? Well, there's two types of evidence that we can look at. Theological evidence and biblical evidence. Well, th- the theological evidence really goes at this idea of losing your salvation, um, and whether or not he could have been a believer and sort of lost it. And so let's start with the theological evidence, since the Bible is more authoritative, um, and it is the authority, and so you tend to end with your strongest argument. So let's start with the theological stuff. So theologically speaking, there are a lot of problems with Judas being a true believer. We'll really only focus on one of them. If Judas was truly a believer, then that means that Jesus died for his sins, right? Judas and those that died before the historic crucifixion Uh, would still be saved by the same death and resurrection that we are, right? And so if he's a true believer, he had to have been atoned for by Jesus's blood. But if Judas ends ends his life as an unbeliever or as a son of destruction, um, as John 17, 12 puts it, and the word destruction there is, is sort of the corollary to the old Hebrew word that talks about being devoted to destruction, as in the Old Testament. After having sort of been a true believer, um, that means that the blood of of Jesus that atoned for Judas's sins would have been insufficient to cover over that particular sin, right? Which would mean that he ends up his life with sin still yet to be atoned for, and so he's judged for that sin, and he ends up as... uh, an unbeliever in destruction. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is if Jesus's blood is unable to cover over all sin, then that means that it would call into question the infinite worthiness and value of that sacrifice, meaning that that sacrifice would have to be finite in its worthiness. And that's a real big problem for us because I'm a really big sinner. And I sin against an infinitely worthy God, which means that my sin is infinitely bad. And so if Jesus' blood can't cover all of it, it only covers over some of it, I have a problem because I'm really, really sinful, and I'm going to out-sin the blood of Jesus. And that's ridiculous. That means that, ultimately speaking, there cannot be salvation at all for anyone if Judas was a believer and had blood, the blood of Jesus atoning for his sins. Salvation, the whole structure of salvation comes down theologically if Judas was a believer. And guess what? Salvation is pretty biblically clear. And so theologically speaking, it doesn't fit with what we understand about the biblical evidence of salvation. Now, What does the Bible say directly about Judas? Well, actually, 
before that. Let me give you some verses that give us assurance of salvation. Um, to sort of directly sort of answer those theological issues. Three verses, John 10, 28 to 29. I give them eternal life and they, ne- they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then finally, John 6, verses 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come, uh, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So do you hear the surety of our salvation? God's children will never perish. None are lost, and Jesus will never cast us out. And so we can be sure that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Those are absolute assurances. That is the foundational bedrock that we can hang everything on. And so true believers cannot lose their salvation. But the scriptural evidence doesn't stop there, right? It doesn't just answer that theological question. It also tells us something about Judas as well. Right, so John six sixty four, but there are some of you who do not believe, and that's Jesus speaking uh, about the disciples and uh, just sort of the disciples in general, not the twelve, um, but all disciple, all of his disciples. Since some of the his disciples were leaving him after he had taught that he was going to have to die uh, and be raised, and and he says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Pretty clear, right? What about John 6, 70 to 71? And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And so John 6 is very clear. Very clear that Judas never believed, that he didn't believe. This is way before we get to John 13, right? This is John 6. And it's not just that he didn't believe, but that he was a devil. That Jesus looked on the outside like a believer, but he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, waiting to reveal his true nature at the opportune time. And that opportune time is what we see evidence of Judas throughout the scripture, right? As I preached before, Judas, we see a lot of places where Judas is talked about, right? And that John clearly says that Judas was skimming sort of proceeds out of the money bag and that he was a thief, that who is really out for himself. And what do we know about Christians? That Christians are about Jesus, right? That who is on the throne of a Christian's life? It's not yourself. It's not about self-interest. It's about Jesus. And so it would seem that the verses that talk about Jesus' grip on all those who believe in him, 
which are the first set of verses that I read, and the verses that clearly put Judas in a different category from all the other disciples, that Judas was never one of the elect, that Judas was never a true believer, that Judas was an imposter playing at a good Christian, even while doing some amazing things ministry-wise. But in the end, he reveals his true nature when he betrays Christ, refusing to repent and seeking his own profit, forsaking all else. So where does this all lead us? Because that's really all depressing, kind of, right? Thinking and talking about Judas. It leads us to this old doctrine that we have, which is perseverance of the saints. Those who have true faith cannot lose it, that they will persevere to the end. But I'd like to make a subtle change, as R.C. Sproul does. R.C. Sproul talk, rather likes to talk about the preservation of the saints rather than the perseverance of the saints. And so why do we care about the difference between preservation and perseverance? Well, because it changes the focus on who's doing the actual work of getting us to the end. Perseverance suggests that we have to do it. I have to persevere to the end. I have to uh, make sure that I run the race, that I make it to the end, lest my faith be sort of proved and revealed as a sham. But really, we, we are assured in our salvation because it's not up to us. Because our salvation is not worked or created or uh, won by us. Right? It's not up to me. So did you catch that all the verses that I read about assurance, Romans 8, um, John, all of those, right? Who is the one that is holding us? Who is the one that is assuring us? Who is the one that will keep us from being snatched out of God's hands? Not us. It's Jesus. Jesus is the power that keeps us safe. Jesus is the one that preserves our salvation, refusing for even one of us to be lost and preventing anyone from snatching his children from his hand. We are safe in our salvation because Jesus is greater than any other and he has resolved to keep us safe. And so it's like this, right? When we get to get ready to cross the street with one of our little children, what do we do? We tell them to hold our hand. We tell them it's really important to hold on to our hand and to not let go because it's really dangerous if they do. And so what do they do? They hold on for dear life. But who's really the one that's keeping them safe? It's not the kid. It's the parent. The parent is making sure that no matter what the kid tries to do, the kid is not let go. Their grip is far more important than the kid's and far more powerful as well. So how many times have you tried to cross the street and the kid tries to let go? And it's not just like, oh, I'm just going to let go and my, my, my parents are going to hold my hand. But they're like actively tugging, trying to get away from you. And you're like half dragging them across the street, right? <laughs> the parent is the one that makes sure the kid is safe. And there's nothing the kid can do about it, right? As much as they try to be in danger and try to get away, they can't. And furthermore, right? How can the kid know that they're safe? They know that they will be safe because their mom or dad loves them. It's not just that their mom or dad is like more powerful than them and so they, they're going to keep them safe, but they know without a shadow of a doubt that that parent will go 
to the absolute length to ensure their safety. Why? Because they are absolutely sure of the length and breadth and width and height and depth of the parents' love for them. In the same way we can trust in the sure and powerful hand of the Lord Jesus to preserve us unto eternal life. And how can we know that Jesus will do this? How can we know? We need to look no further than the cross. The proof of his great love for us. Jesus died on that cross for you and for me. And he's not about to let that sacrifice be for nothing. He has loved you unto the end and so you will go unto the end. And what is wonderfully and comforting about that thought is that not only for my own sense of assurance and ease, but also for those whom I desperately love as well. You see, assurance works multiple ways, right? It's not just for me, but also for those whom I love who have made a profession of faith and yet have also walked away. We are reminded that true salvation cannot be lost. And so what do we do? We trust and rely upon God's promise to draw them back to himself in his time. And a lot of times, that's all we've got left. We've tried all the conversations. We've tried all the arguments. We've prayed for them. We've asked, we've marshaled every resource to try to draw them back into a right relationship with the Lord, and it doesn't work. And so what are we left with? We are left with the assurance of our salvation. We are left with the preservation of the saints. We trust and rely upon God's promise. He will not fail to bring them back. None shall be lost. No, no one can snatch them out of his hand. They cannot outsin the blood of Jesus. That gives us a profound sense of comfort when there is no comfort elsewhere to be found. We trust that the faith that we saw before will prove to be true and that it won't turn out like Judas's. I hope that not, that not only answers, the, all of this not only answers the question of if you can lose your salvation, but also give you assurance of that you can't. But really, there's a deeper question. There's a deeper question that we all have to wrestle with, and it's the question that's a step before losing your salvation. That question is, what is true faith, and how can I know I have it? What is true faith, and how can I know that I have it? That question of salvation really digs into what salvation really is. And when I talk about the gospel... I say that there are at least three elements. Jesus' death, which pays for the judgment that we deserve. Jesus' resurrection, which declares his victory over sin and death. And lastly, our union with Christ. And that union is where salvation accomplished by Jesus becomes salvation applied to me. But what actually happens when I'm saved? And Romans 8.29 says that, Christians are being conformed to the image of his son. And so when I am saved, I am transformed in my heart, in my inner man, to become like Christ. That I am becoming more and more conformed to Christ's image. 
everything about me, my very desires, are becoming increasingly aligned with Christ's desires. That's what sanctification is. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby, listen closely, we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And so in short, that means I love what God loves and hates what God hates. That I love the things that God loves in the order or priority that God loves them. And so that internal transformation can't be hidden, but will inevitably produce changes in who we are and how we live and produce fruit that we can see. And this is how we can tell. Do we love righteousness and hate sin? Probably not as much as we should, but ultimately we do. Usually we would point to the fruit of the Spirit here, right? How can we know? Do you display the fruit of the Spirit? Do you show that the Spirit is living within you? Do you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, right? But those positive righteous qualities are only half of the equation. We have to die more and more unto sin. My friends, we are sinful people. Y'all will readily agree with me. But are we dying to that sin? Are we repenting actively, seeking not only to turn from sinfulness, but also to return to righteousness? Are we seeking to do what we can to make right the sins that we have committed? Repentance isn't just feeling sorry for what we did wrong, but seeking to make it right, to seek restoration. And repentance is often sort of the word for repentance is often interchangeable with the word for return. And so we, we are asking, it's not just turning away, but also returning to righteousness, returning to the very presence of the one who has saved us. Sin not only moves, sin moves us away from the Lord, right? And so we don't need to just turn around, but we also need to move back toward him. And so folks, if you want a surefire way to know if you or someone else is a true believer, don't just look for the fruit of the Spirit, because that's easy, easy to mistake, right? It's easy to look at positive achievements and traits and just sort of chalk them up to the fruit of the Spirit. The real question is, do you hate sin and do you want to turn from it and return back to God? And so really, the easiest, most surefire way to know whether or not you're a true believer is whether or not you repent. Repentance indicates a heart that has been transformed by Christ and continues to be conformed more and more to Christ's image. True believers are habitual repenters. The refusal to repent isn't itself condemning because that refusal might change in the future, but the refusal to repent isn't in line with true faith. And this is why we tell folks that refuse to repent to avoid coming to the Lord's Supper. If you don't repent... It really casts doubt on the genuineness of your faith. And if you come to the Lord's table, you might be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself, so you must be very careful. We need to really be a people of repentance. I pray that our church would be marked by repentance. That when folks talk about your Christian life, that they would say, 
so-and-so is really good at repenting, that their heart is searching for sin to root out and destroy, that they might return unto righteousness. I hope that's true of me. I hope that if ever there is sin in my life, that you would be able to come to me and that you would visibly see me broken over that sin, that I would hate it, that I would mourn over it, and that I would rejoice in the opportunity to return unto righteousness, that you might rejoice with me. So to bring this full circle, how do we know that Judas was not a believer? We know because he never repented. He felt sorry and regret, but he never returned to Jesus. Peter was different, right? He too betrayed Jesus and denied him three times, no less. But what happens? He ends up being restored to the Lord, to return to him, coming back to Jesus, or rather, Jesus bringing him home. And so, friends, today is the day to repent and return to Jesus to find in him life eternal. Today and every day from now till we see him again are days to be reminded that we have true faith as we repent of our sins. Every day as you repent, you are reminded in your repentance that you are a true believer. May we rejoice in the continual reminder that we are his and that we are being made more and more like him. Let us pray. Father God, as we look at the story of Judas, our first inclination is to despair because we think that we can lose our salvation. But Lord, thank thank you so much that you made it very clear that Judas was never a believer. But more than that, Lord, we thank you for the assurance of our salvation. That Jesus just as sure as he died and just as sure as he lived, he will bring us to the end, that he will not fail to complete the good work that he has started within us. Lord, we stand here as children pulling at your hand, seeking to get away from you because we're sinners and we love our sin sometimes. But Lord, thank you that you do not let us go but that you work repentance in us to remind us of that true faith that lives within, to prove the fact that the Holy Spirit is there pricking our hearts, reminding us that we are yours. And Lord, we ask that we would be a people that turn from our sin, that hate it and return to you in righteousness. But help us be a repenting people. It is hard to be to see how we have sinned. But Lord, what a glorious salvation that we have in you. Lord, would that be transforming? Would that be life-giving? Would that be assuring, we pray? In Jesus' matchless and holy and preserving name,